Family Secrets is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the leading provider of audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. You may have noticed that many of the guests on Family Secrets are writers, those who have given form and voice to their secrets. That's why I'm so thrilled to be sponsored by Audible. Family Secrets listeners can get one audiobook of their choosing, including bestsellers and new releases and access to Audible's all-new Plus catalog, free with a 30-day trial. Visit audible.com slash Danny or text Danny to 500-500 to get started. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. I realized I never knew my father. I think other guests on your podcast have talked about that. I really never knew who he was. And it's still taking me many years. I mean, it's taken many years to even say that. And I think it'll be many more years to understand what that means. That's Emily Bernard. Emily is a university professor, essayist, and memoirist, author of the acclaimed book, Black is the Body. Emily also wrote an essay for O! The Oprah Magazine about forgiving her father's mistress. This is a story about the many ways in which understanding and compassion can turn anger and enmity into something else, something that might even be called beautiful. I'm Danny Shapiro, and this is Family Secrets. The secrets that are kept from us, the secrets we keep from others, and the secrets we keep from ourselves. I'm a mother's daughter in that I don't have a natural relationship to the natural world. She was a child who was very much centered in the natural world, and she grew up in the rural south in Hazelhurst, Mississippi. But when we moved to the suburbs, she really stayed inside as much as possible. And I wanted to be with her. So that was my planet, you know, the house. Um, And emotionally, my mother was the center of everything. My mother was a beautiful woman inside and out. I don't think there's a single person who would deny that. She was religious, but religion didn't dominate her but it was deep and it was true. And it's how she organized her life around, you know, very traditional Christian values. She was a kind person, a generous person. She was reserved. She was very funny. And she was whip smart and very creative, very thoughtful, but also depressed from a very young age, something she had inherited from her paternal line and grappled with that before there was a real language around it. She said to me once, you know, we had the blues. It really hindered her. Um, And also, I think her sense of privacy hindered her a lot, too. She had a problem making connections with people outside of the family that made her very much alone, even though people liked her. I grew up feeling very afraid of my father. I mean, I remember just a constant feeling of anxiety, not being able to relax, worried that I was going to set him off somehow. And his disapproval was something that hovered over me all the time. My father ruled the roost, and that was that. So I had to learn to live within those confines. And my mother didn't raise a wilting flower. She raised someone who could speak her own mind. But my father, one of the best things I've heard that helped soothe me years ago, a therapist said, you just weren't a good fit as 
parent and child, and that gave me so much comfort. I think that was really the problem. As much energy and money as he put into my education, the fact that I was a a girl who talked back and had her own opinions, he could not manage that. Emily's parents meet in Nashville as university students in the 1950s. Her father was in medical school, and her mother was a well-regarded campus poet. His story was that he just revered her from afar. In fact, one of his stories he liked to tell was that he knew how much she loved art, and so he got a print of the Mona Lisa and put it under her door, uh, her dorm room. And I think that did seal it for my mother, that this guy with a buzz cut and the awkward glasses could be interesting for her romantically. My father was a deeply charismatic person, and he had a lot of fans. he was somebody who come in a situation, always had a joke, always had a handshake. He had a heavy presence, and as much as he was someone who had a ready joke with his children, he was deeply judgmental. We never, we never really measured up. I grew up with that sense of always bordering on disappointing him. And so I, I followed the path that he had laid before me, you know, and education was important to both of my parents. And They wanted us to perform at a high level, and and it was the way I got his approval, if not his love. Emily does perform at a high level. She goes off to Yale, a school her father would most certainly have approved of. She comes back to Nashville one winter break. She's home with her mom and her brothers. Her mom was Emily's dad's office manager, and she kept the books, both for his office and the household finances. So she's balancing the books— and her mom sees something that doesn't add up. A plane ticket purchased in the name of a patient who also works part-time in her father's office. She said, "Why? I wonder why he would do this. Why would he buy this ticket? And I was very quick to rationalize it or just dismiss it. And also, my mother was a worrier. So, you know, I just reassured her quickly that it was nothing and she was imagining it. And that's what she lived with, unfortunately. I was part of the complicity or the silence that surrounded her. The ticket was made out to a woman by the name of Jeanette Curry. And after Emily returns to college, it starts to become clear, at least to her, that something troubling is going on back home. It's 1989, you're a college senior, and you write in your journal, Jeanette Curry won't stop calling mom. Why is she doing this to her? Mm-hmm. At that point, I was hearing, I was, I was in Connecticut, and she was in Nashville, and she would call me and tell me about Jeanette's phone calls. And it was very confusing to me. Uh, Jeanette had been part of our landscape, our family landscape, for, for years at that point. My mother and I were very close, and we talked almost every day when I was in college. So it would be, it would punctuate our conversations, this phone call, and my mother would, you know, call the phone company and change the number. And then Jeanette would call the phone company and say, this is Mrs. Bernard, and I've forgotten my number. And I think those things would not be so easy to do now. And I often think about that, the things that could have protected my mother or given her some relief. But it was like her world was an open book because she had no protection. My father was not protecting her. And Jeanette had sort of trained her attention on my mother because she wasn't getting the response from my father that she wanted. Both Emily and her mother were certain Jeanette was lying, a demented fantasist that she was just plain crazy. I mean, who stalks someone like this? The family narrative was that this woman was just after his money. 
Her father was insistent on this point, and he was apparently very convincing. Besides, he was a formidable figure, and it must have felt impossible to push him. My father had such a casual relationship with the truth in general that I didn't like to ask him direct questions because I knew his inclination would be to lie. He was someone who just made up stories about his life, and everybody in his world just believed them. But in fact, when Emily wrote those lines in her college journal, Jeanette Curry won't stop calling mom, why is she doing this to her? The answer was being played out in another home, in another neighborhood in Nashville. There was a baby, a boy named Lee, a toddler by this point, the child of Emily's father and Jeanette Curry. Could you describe Jeanette? We went to a very staid Episcopal church where we recited the Latin, the Mass in Latin, you know, in the high holidays. Um, and Jeanette would come and she would shout about Jesus and it was just the most bizarre thing. <laughs> I mean, between, I mean, literally, there'd be our pew that we occupied as one of the old families in the church and Jeanette would sit on the other side and she'd be shouting and, and people would just not know what to do <laughs> with this person. So she was uncontainable. She was a free radical in our world. And that made it also very hard because she she had no shame. She was unembarrassed about her relationship with my father. And as opposed to my parents, who were very concerned with self-composition and how we appeared, she didn't care at all about that. So we didn't have a choice about how much we could conceal from our larger world because she was making it public all the time. While your father was all the while denying it. Yeah, he would sit in his pew and just act like nothing was happening. <laughs> so he left sort of everyone else to deal with the mess, but he was an island of stoicism and denial. So there's a baby, there's a mistress, and there are family Sundays in church. Emily's father pretends nothing's going on, but as with all good secrets and lies, this one eventually proves impossible to contain, no matter how he'd like to pretend otherwise. So tell me about this legal battle that then, I guess, results in your father taking a paternity test. There was a call placed to it's a DCF or the Child Welfare Services in Nashville that triggered a blood test to determine Lee's paternity. And again, I'm still trying to sift through and figure out the actual, the meaning and what happened here. And the test revealed that my father was Lee's father, as Jeanette had been claiming. So it vindicated Jeanette. So we don't know who placed that call that, that triggered the whole episode. I don't quite believe it. But Jeanette says it's my mother who placed the call. She thought that that would be a way to kind of get Jeanette out of her life. And even at that moment... My mother said, well, you know, these tests are only 99.9% .9 reliable. I think about this so much in my own life and also in the stories of so many of my guests on Family Secrets. The tagline for the show is the secrets that are kept from us, the secrets we keep from others, and the secrets we keep from ourselves. And I always find that last part the most uh, resonant or haunting, the secrets that we keep from ourselves that we're capable of keeping out of self-preservation, out of love, out of fear out of shame, out of so many things. But so now your mother knows. I mean, you're, and your father denies, 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 denies. And then at some point he says, yes, and so what? doesn't really matter. <laughs> Everybody does this. Right. 
That was his attitude, which shocked my mother. I mean, he did all the classic things and begged her not to leave and um, told her he didn't know what he'd do without her, told her that he knew the kids would go with her, which was true. We would have certainly taken my mother's side and anything she wanted we would have given her in terms of shows of loyalty. And she stayed. She was very practical. And she knew what happened to women after divorce. She had been so talented, but she spent her, you know, so much of her life and our our lives um, working in my father's office and being an excellent homemaker. So she didn't believe she could compete in a job market, and she didn't want to. I think she felt she had built my father's career. She was going to stay and and reap some of the benefits. And I remember one time saying to her, you know, Dad, he would never hold it against you if you are afraid of the social stigma of divorce. You don't have to divorce him. You can travel, take his money. He would never begrudge you that. And she said, Emily, I made this home, and I'm going to stay in it. So that's what she did. Emily's mother also does something quite extraordinary here. She wants to see Lee taken care of, because that's the right thing to do, despite everything. For all of her disappointment, she didn't want another kind of unacknowledged Black child in the world. So she told my father, you have to write him into your will in some way. So, you know, my mother was a deeply ethical person and, you know, cared about the community. She cared about Black people. She cared about this child, even though she never knew him and wanted to know him. And she cared, I think, about what she would be leaving behind. But she was very angry. I think she ricocheted between a lot of emotions. I think she was almost making a conscious choice about how to deal with this, how to be in the wake of this. So she tried anger, and she tried vindictiveness, and she tried, I think, almost mimicking Jeanette and kind of being out of control and letting her emotions fly. But in the end, my mother was a decorous and decent person who preferred a contemplative life. We'll be back in a moment with more Family Secrets. Family Secrets is sponsored by Audible. As communities around the world confront new challenges, including social distancing and school closures, many of us are looking for new ways to relax and feel connected to the world, to ourselves, to one another. Whether that means getting lost in a historical story, a memoir, a work of provocative nonfiction, or a juicy celebrity biography. I know that stories help. Stories pierce our solitude and make us feel less alone. Audiobooks are such an intimate form. It's why I love them. We can just close our eyes, take a break from Zoom, and get swept away. I listen to Audible originals, audiobooks, guided wellness programs, even comedy, as I'm walking my dog or folding my laundry, or behind the wheel of my car. Thousands of titles right at our fingertips. That's such a gift at any time, but particularly during these times. Start your 30-day trial with Audible and get one audiobook plus access to the all-new Plus Catalog for free by visiting audible.com slash Danny or by texting Danny to 500-500. Emily's mom dies at the age of 70. She had struggled all her life with depression, the blues, And she felt humiliated by the role she'd been forced to play in her church, her community, that of the spurned wife. She also had trouble breathing and suffered from chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. By the end of her life, she was really a shut-in, a recluse. And all during her mother's decline, Emily begins her life as an adult. She gets her doctorate, 
starts to teach. Eventually, she meets her husband and becomes the mother of twin daughters. What must it have been like to carry the weight of all that history? Well, my mother was my first concern, and I think this was true for my brothers as well. Um, I never wrestled with how I really felt about it. I had a lot of rage toward my father. We did not have an easy relationship, and this was the icing on the cake. And I buried that rage. It was very hard for me to be around him physically. And there was this thick and unspoken distance between us. We both knew why. We never spoke of it. He never talked to me about Jeanette. He never spoke her name. He never spoke Lee's name in my presence. He talked to my brothers more about it. But I think I was the girl. And also, I was enraged with him. And he felt my judgment. And it scared him. (laughs) So we never spoke about it. I was angry at her sometimes for letting this break her. I needed to believe she had choices because I was growing up and I wanted to have choices. I hated to see her beaten down by this man um, because it had not been an easy marriage. She would always counsel me to make a different kind of choice when I get married. So that was the idea that my life would be sort of a corrective to what she was experiencing. But it, it tore at me watching her decline She didn't want my help. She actually disappeared into the marriage even deeper. My father took care of her, and he administered all of her medications. All the while, Emily isn't just contending with her sadness and grief about her mother and her rage at her father. No, she's also dealing with the specter of Jeanette, who, in some way, she blames for the whole thing. Whenever I'd see her, I would feel homicidal. I mean, really, I learned about anger from my experience with this woman, because she was whittling my mother away. I myself was ricocheting between a lot of different emotions, and it was easier to bury them, to stay buried in New England, and then to Vermont, as far away as I could get from them, and stay in the United States. I didn't allow myself, I think, to confront what I felt. My father, even though he had done such damage, he still ruled the roost. He was a king and we were her subjects. I never would have been able to conceive of even bringing this woman's name up to him. It was out of the question. She would be at our church. She would come up to me. I mean, she, again, this woman obeyed no conventional boundaries, and she would talk to me about my family. And there was one moment when Isabella, my daughter, who was just a very sweet child, and she came up and said, oh, Isabella's gotten so much bigger. And... Isabella went in to hug her because she was responding to the tone of her voice. And I just put my hand on Isabella's back. And I went home that day from church. And I heard my father on the phone saying, in these low, soft tones, well, you have to be the bigger person. And I knew down to my toes, like a lightning bolt, he was talking to Jeanette. And then he was casting at that moment as if I had been so rude inexcusably rude, and she should rise above. What it did was it just kept, the bottom kept falling out. The bottom kept descending, you know what I mean? Like There was no floor to my feelings of disappointment in my father. And I still needed a father. I mean, I still needed him to be a person I could respect. So it was easier just to let him lie and to keep my distance. But eventually, Emily does go visit her father. She describes the trip to Nashville as a whim. She was working on her book and wanted to do some research. There were some journals she wanted to lay her hands on. 
I'm still stunned by the turn of events that happened now, four years ago, almost exactly. I came in the house, and I was looking for the journal, and my father came upstairs, and my mother had all these, there were all these pill bottles that were still on the bathroom sink. She had died in 2008, um, seven years before, and I said, what are these bottles doing here? And he said, you know, I, I just, I think I'm still in love with your mother. And we hugged. And it was the most sincere and deepest hug that we'd had in many years. Maybe since I was a child. He was not comfortable, really, with a lot of touching. So he was even a little, but I kept him close. And I noticed at that moment that in my heart, I received those words purely and without the usual sarcasm I felt. And I'm so grateful that those are the last words we spoke because the next morning he was dead. And my father was in perfect health. He'd never been sick a day in his life. Amazing the way sometimes we're given a gift, even in the midst of great pain. A hug, a moment between a father and a daughter who, what was it the therapist once told Emily? Weren't a good fit as parent and child. After her father's death, Emily reaches out to the relatively new reverend from her family's church, Reverend Cynthia. Her father had been gone for only hours. His body was still seated in the chair where he was stricken by the massive heart attack. Reverend Cynthia comes to the Bernard home. She performs a beautiful ritual and anoints Emily's father's body with oil. And we sat there, my father's sitting in the chair, and I tell her everything, and she knew everything. And she told me the situation between my father and the Currys had been the biggest rift in her congregation. She was pretty new to the church. My father was mentoring her. He was trying to introduce her to the kind of social intricacies at our church and, you know, help her become adjusted to the life at, at our church. And she was trying to make things right, but there were people who could not forgive my father. And that was the first time I knew that people actually had been my mother's side. But during the course of their conversation, Emily makes another painful discovery. Despite the bottles of her mom's prescription medication, despite her dad's confession that he still was in love with her, he still had remained intensely involved with Jeanette Curry, Jeanette's husband, children, and grandchildren, but not as a romantic partner. And I found out that my father, he was eating every meal at Jeanette's house. Her grandchildren called him grandpa. She and her husband had a child, and then she and your father had a child. And this somehow coexisted as some version of modern family. Absolutely. I often think, when I, I understood it when I read The Color Purple. I think I was in college, and at the end of that novel, Mr. and Shug had caused Celie so much pain. But they were sitting together on the, on the porch, and I think they were knitting or doing something, all three of them. And that was the situation between my father and Jeanette and her family. They were survivors of a war. And it was a war of their own making, but it was a war all the same. And they lived together. Really, my father would go over to their house, eat every meal there. And I thought, this man is never going to stop disappointing me. How could he have a relationship with this family after what they did to my mother? But he did. He took Jeanette's grandchildren to church, to school. He helped them with their homework, something he never did with my brother. My brothers and I, I think, were surprised because he was a different person with them. He was an active grandfather. He and Jeanette had more of a relationship of equals. They would argue. He never argued with my mother. My mother never would have questioned him. She was 
quote unquote, the perfect wife. You know, that's that's who she was. She was living out of some magazine. I mean, and it wasn't fake. You know, it was sincere. She was just someone who believed that the husband was at the head of the family. I mean, I think there was half of her that really questioned that. But again, she'd been groomed for a certain kind of adult life. But he and Jeanette were sparring partners. Um, she confronted him with his hypocrisy. In a way, my mother, I don't think she really would have ever felt comfortable doing that. He was nurtured in that family, and he was seen in that family in a way that he was not seen in our family. He was himself there in a way that he could not be with me, I think, and my brothers and my mother. I learned also that he that he was trying to, in some ways, I think, repent. And he and Jeanette would go into, you know, lower-income neighborhoods, the projects, if you will, and proselytize and bring Bibles and try to convert people. I mean, I had always known he was very religious. He grew up, you know, in the Anglican Church in Trinidad and was very obedient in that way. But, I mean, I'm still trying to understand this and reconcile this portrait with the person I grew up with. But that was the truth. I mean, it was corroborated by, you know, several people that he was on a mission, it seems, in the final years of his life, perhaps to make right with my mother's memory. You got me all mm. verklempt, it's yeah. a Yiddish word, for <laughs> a little emotional. So Emily initiates a face-to-face -face with Jeanette. She's torn, on the one hand, by the horrible history of Jeanette and her mother, and trying to square that history with the stories she now hears from Reverend Cynthia about Jeanette's current, very different relationship with her father. Meanwhile, she's a grieving daughter, a complicated grief to be sure, and she's about to bury her father. I behaved in ways I really regret around the funeral. I didn't want Jeanette's family there. I mean, my brothers were bewildered by the degree of my anger, and they sort of backed off and said, whatever she wants. I didn't want her at the service. I made it very difficult for her to come to the wake. I was full of unleashed fury, and I regret that now. And Jeanette knows that I regret it. But I couldn't control myself. It was a really different story, and I thought, you know, I'm going to, you know, seek vengeance. And I asked Reverend Cynthia to be there because, one, I wanted a witness, and two, I didn't know if I could trust myself on how I'd behave. So I wanted someone there I respected that I thought, you know, I'm not going to act a fool in front of her. And as soon as I came in the room, I mean, it was just strange to be looking at this woman in the eye. You know, I'd, I'd studiously ignored her. It was about acting superior, but it was also because I was afraid to look in her eyes. You know, over the course of a three-hour conversation, and I asked her if I could record it, and she agreed. I mean, a hundred pages of a transcript. I realized that she was as much a victim in the situation as my mother. When you say you were afraid, you had always been afraid to look her in the eye, what were you afraid of seeing there? Do you think it was maybe that you were afraid of seeing that she was a human being? Yes, I think I was afraid of seeing a real person and not the villain. I needed to keep her as a villain, you know, to keep it uncomplicated or as much as I could. During that conversation, she says to you, I just wanted your mother to forgive me. I, I wanted her, her to forgive me so bad. And it seems like that was the moment for you that it kind of, you know, broke open. Absolutely. Because don't we all want that? You know, I am also my mother's daughter in that, you know, I religion or my faith in God is really important to me. And you know, every week in church, we pray for forgiveness. And she made a mistake, something she views as a mistake now. But I'm not a saint. 
You know, I mean, I've, I've hurt people. I've been careless with other people's emotions. I've been forgiven, you know, by friends and by family. So how can I not offer her that? And everyone who was hurt in this situation is no longer alive. So it's really the two of us now. And my mother at the end of her life was talking a lot about forgiveness and telling me that I need to be more forgiving, ironically. <laughs> I mean, she was, after I'm holding the torch for her for years, feeling like keeping her anger alive was important. I really believe that, probably up to that moment with Jeanette. Or maybe experiencing her anger that she couldn't experience. That's right. Because the way you've described her, that was like the last thing she wanted to feel. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I felt, when I went to meet Jeanette, I remember thinking, I'm a panther. You know, I always thought my mother was like, you know, this deer in the headlights. And Jeanette was like some jackal. And I just was tired of that. And when I sat and listened to her, honestly, I realized that what she wanted was very simple, was for my father to be a father to his son. And after he died, I'd gone through all of his papers. I found at least one check she had returned from my father saying, I don't want your money. But my conditioning was so thorough that I edited it out of my consciousness. And as soon as she said the part about wanting my mother's forgiveness, it came back into view in my head. I thought she never wanted his money. She wanted to, she had to give to Lee what he'd given to us, which was a step up and a step out of, you know, all the limitations they were living with. She also describes for you or explains to you the reasons why she was harassing, which I thought was really kind of amazing too. Yeah, and you know, I've been driven crazy by a man before. I mean, <laughs> you know, it happens. And I think that's partly what happened. I think Jenna and I are learning to tell the truth to each other. So there are many layers of the story that are unfolding. And, you know, I think it's difficult sometimes to be really truthful when we've hurt someone so deeply or made mistakes. And I think she's grappling with that herself. There's a way in which she shaped the story to help herself survive. I mean, my father, what I also realized is he'd set me up as his straw man. I mean, he would tell Jeanette, well, Emily wouldn't want me. Whenever she wanted him to help her, I think, with a down payment on, on a condo she wanted to buy, and he, he was supposed to be someone who signed. And at the last minute, he said, well, Emily doesn't want me to do that. <laughs> Emily doesn't, and I had never heard of this. So she had a feeling about me that it was not accurate because my father, again, was telling multiple stories and keeping people in their places. Um, so we've had to undo a lot of that, and we've laughed a lot about all the things that we believed about each other. But I think um, as we talk, she's feeling safer to tell me the truth. You know, she was in a situation at our church where all of the people were doctors and lawyers. Here she was, feeling very alone, feeling very out of place, and everyone was making her feel that way. Because of, you know, again, loyalty to my parents, she was coming to church, I found out, because my father had been asking her to come to church. I mean, she, every time I would come home, she would be at church. I mean, he had this idea that he could normalize things and that we would come around. And she told me, because your father, you were the one he was afraid of. And, you know, and it, the thing that was, it was funny and it was true, but it was also odd to realize how much he talked to her about me and his fears about me and how I felt about him. He said, you know, I know those kids think I, I killed their mother. And I did. So he knew me better than I thought he did. And she 
had a lot of intuitive feelings about who I was. It's so much about knowing and being known, isn't it? You know, when I asked you before about what it felt like for you when you were in your 20s and 30s, watching your mother's decline and moving forward in, in your life and the various feelings, uh, you know, you describe them as, you know, like, like all these different, like trying on different feelings for size. I'm going to try vindictiveness. I'm going to try rage. I'm going to try pain, you know, whatever. But mostly your concern was about your mother. So I guess what I'm wondering is what now is the feeling you're a mother of teenage kids, you're a professor, you're a memoirist, you're a wife, you know, you're a friend, you're many things. Why is it important? You know, some people at my church have really encouraged me to my home church in Nashville out of concern for me and maybe concerned about what I'm going to discover have really advised me very gently to leave the story alone. And of course, it, make, it attracts me even more to the story. This is the story of my life in some way. When I was going down to Nashville to have this talk with Jeanette, you know, I was myself confused. Why am I doing this? And I said to my husband, you know, do you understand? Because I wanted him to tell me why. <laughs> and he said, this woman has more, had more impact on your life than any other person besides your parents. I think I'm driven to know. I mean, my parents are both gone and you know that's I'm next so the understanding I have from my own experience about just wanting to know the truth in all of its ugliness and all of its mysteries I I would like to know realize I never knew my father I think other guests on your podcast have talked about that I really never knew who he was and it's still taking me many years. I mean, it's taken many years and to even say that. And I think it'll be many more years to understand what that means. Jeanette is honestly one of the only people I have left who knows the story. She lived the story. I no longer have, you know, vengeful feelings toward her, but we have an odd bond. She's had some health issues over the years. And at the time I went down to talk to her, I felt a real urgency about that, you know, before anything happens to her, I need to have this conversation. And then there's the matter of Lee, Emily's half-brother. In a story so much about forgiveness and understanding, even in the most difficult circumstances, this too is, of course, a bridge that must be crossed. Can you tell me about meeting him for the first time? We connected on Facebook, and I'm a little embarrassed to say that my first response to him was, you know, what is it that you want? One of the things I've come to realize is that when there is what feels like a quote-unquote interloper in a family, without exception, in my experience, the very first feeling is threat. It's a primitive, hardwired, biological thing that happens, which is your other, your outside, and people, even when they often eventually come around to realizing that that's just not the case, feel threatened. Yeah, I absolutely felt threatened. And Lee immediately said, you know, I just want to know my siblings. I just want a big sister. Why would I deny him that? Lee was 31 years old and Emily in her late 40s when they first met. And he'd recently been paroled after a minor drug offense. It's interesting that this only happened and probably only could have happened in the aftermath of your father's death. 
it wasn't going to happen while your father was alive. No, and I think also, if I hadn't been there, the Currys would have discovered him, and that would have been terrible, because I was still locked in a place of bitterness toward them. So I am, again, it was a great gift that he let go of life when I was there. It started the whole thing. And, right, I've told Jeanette, I said, I, I could never have done this with my father, particularly Lee, because it would have made him too happy. It would have pleased him too much. There's no way I could have ever, you know, because I found out after his death that that's what he had wanted. He, and he had promised Lee that he was going to try to foster a relationship. But he was too afraid of me, I think, to say that to me. But it was so easy. You know, I mean, my father gave me the gift of his death, if I can say that. It sounds cruel, but he can't disappoint me anymore. He's not allowed to disappoint me anymore. So I can I can mourn him and I can remember him. And he's sort of still. And the curtain opened and there are these people. And one of them is my half-brother. And, you know, my daughters are adopted. And I know that love happens and blossoms outside of the genetic relationship, but there's something that happened, something that happened as soon as Lee and I saw each other. And my heart melted. We planned to get together, and I thought we should have a, we should have a date. So first we were reading things together. You know, we were reading because that's my mode. <laughs> so uh, we were reading books, you know. And Let's have a text between exactly. us. Exactly. And the first time we did FaceTime, we really couldn't even speak. We were just smiling so much. So we met, and I look exactly like my father. I mean, the older I get, you know, I, if I walk through the streets of North Nashville, people are falling out. There's Dr. Bernard. So he was stunned. And Lee is just extraordinary. I mean, he had one of those kind of revelations when he was in prison that, you know, he was the author of his own experience. And he let go of a lot of bitterness toward my dad. I have been really humbled by that because he has just accepted it, even though he told me once, you know, he was in jail when my father died. And he wished he could have asked him, why did you have me? Why was I born? And you're left, as so often is the case, holding the story, holding, you know, your mother's, the rage she couldn't feel that, you know, that you've worked through and your father's guilt, the guilt that it doesn't seem that he was particularly capable of feeling, you know, but it was there. It's almost like it was in the cosmos and somebody had to actually kind of contend with it. And so, I mean, that's how it's striking me is that you're at this point where you have these two new relationships, neither one of which you could ever have anticipated, you know, one with Jeanette and one with Lee. And this is sort of the work that needed to be done. And it couldn't be done by either of your parents, but it's being done now by you. I think part of the story, what it's taught me is, I mean, I thought I experienced every emotion, you know, at my age, and I hadn't. <laughs> and I'm experiencing new emotions now that are very intriguing to me. I'm surprised every time I hear from Jeanette about the lack of rancor and the eerie connection that I have a hard time explaining. For instance, after this essay came out, I hadn't anticipated how emotional it would be to see it in print and to contend with the aftermath of telling this little sliver of the truth. And there are people who caution me, again, in my life, elders who care about me, who ask me, but also with some frustration, you know, why are you talking to her? Why do you believe her? Maybe I'm naive, but I'm interested in what she has to say. And 
I don't think she's lied to me yet. I think she's done with lying. And I think we're both at a place where we want to know the truth. In fact, when I started to write the piece in the magazine, she said, you know, our story has a lot to teach people about forgiveness. And again, I just humbled by the wisdom, by the clarity, the generosity. Well, and it's interesting because at least as you have spoken about her and written about her, she wasn't a liar. She did a lot of other hurtful things, but lying, which your father did, you know, full on, it doesn't seem like Jeanette did that. Yeah. There's a lot of truth. I'm still contending with this. I mean, I had a lifetime of hating this woman. Right. It's sometimes hard to accept the fact that she was truthful, even when it's staring me in the face. I also think she's a human being and did more damage than she is able to really face right now, which again, I empathize with. I mean, I think that's just true of being a human being, that sometimes it's hard to face our mistakes, especially when they've been profound. There are parts of the story that are still very mysterious to me. But Jeanette is, knows I need to see receipts, as we say. And, you know, because she wasn't believed, has kept voice recordings. She's kept correspondence. She kept records because no one believed her. And she's sharing them with me now because she wants me to know. I'd like to thank Emily Bernard for sharing her story with us. Learn more about Emily's memoir, Black as the Body, Stories from My Grandmother's Time, My Mother's Time, and Mine, by visiting emilybernard.com. Family Secrets is an iHeartMedia production. Dylan Fagan is a supervising producer. Julie Douglas and Beth Ann Macaluso are the executive producers. If you have a family secret that you'd like to share, you can get in touch with us at listenermail at familysecretspodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram at Danny Writer, Facebook at Family Secrets Pod, and Twitter at Fam Secrets Pod. For more about my book, Inheritance, visit dannyshapiro.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Family Secrets is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the leading provider of audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. You may have noticed that many of the guests on Family Secrets are writers, those who have given form and voice to their secrets. That's why I'm so thrilled to be sponsored by Audible. Family Secrets listeners can get one audiobook of their choosing, including bestsellers and new releases, and access to Audible's all-new Plus catalog, free with a 30-day trial. Visit audible.com/danny or text danny to 500-500 to get started.